Hello, how are you? I hope this finds you well. Thank you very much and welcome along to Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman, uh, my weekly podcast where I selfishly pick the brains of the uh, creative minds, creative brains of the creative minds. Does that make sense? You kind of know what I'm trying to say anyway. Uh, I get to pick the brains of a wonderful collection of creatives from the world of film, music and TV. Um, and thank you so much for choosing to listen to us. Um, I love doing this podcast and I know I say that all the time, but I genuinely do because I learn so much from it. Um, and I love walking away with a little bit more knowledge and passion and love for film, really. Um, I just wanted to say as well, I I know there's been some kind of mixed reviews. I mean, I never read reviews, but it's hard to avoid seeing people's perception of things on social media. So I've gotten a whiff that there's been a mixed bag of uh, feedback on the new Doctor Strange film. So I went along to uh, my local view in uh, Stroud to watch the aforementioned film with my 13-year-old on Friday night or Saturday night, anyway, over the weekend. And we had a great time. I went in having not really read much about the synopsis or what the film's about or even really knowing about any major kind of cast moments in the film. Um, I definitely didn't read any reviews or hear what anyone had to say about it in any particular uh, depth. And I've got to say, I think because I went in there uh, wanting to be entertained, went in there with no preconceptions, um, apart from knowing that I'd really enjoyed the previous Doctor Strange film. And I also went in there just with a kind of open mind, I think, as well, but also being accompanied by my 13 year old. And we had a great time. We really enjoyed it. We um, talked about loads of stuff after it as well, about theories, what other things we'd like to see, about characters that appear, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I have got to disagree with a lot of things I've been seeing about Doctor Strange. I thought it was awesome. Anyway, something slightly different for you this week on Soundtracking. And I hope you like this as much as I did doing it, because we reflect on a new documentary that you might have heard me talking about, about the life of Ennio Morricone in the company of three of his admirers. The film is called Ennio and it features contributions from the man himself. In fact, the director spent about 11 days with Ennio, observing him, just filming him in his kind of daily routine and going in quite deep about things as well. It's hugely emotional. It's so insightful. And it also features the likes of Quentin Tarantino, John Williams, Clint Eastwood and Hans Zimmer, as well as one of my guests today, director of The Mission, Roland Joff. Alongside Roland are composer Matthew Herber and music supervisor Lucy Bright in what's a really fascinating discussion. It's hard to know where to turn when it comes to choosing a cue to kick off with, but we're going to go with this. The ecstasy of the gold from the good, the bad and the ugly.
Lucy, Matthew, Roland, thank you so much for joining me. This is uh, really lovely because we, well, I hope we all get to enthuse about this, this really beautiful and emotional film that I kind of has really stayed with me actually since I watched it a couple of weeks ago um, and, and celebrating this, this man's work really. And it's more than just music really. He's sort of, I don't know, I just think he's probably, well, we'll talk about it. He's touched, he's touched me and sort of taken me on a journey through my entire life through various you know, films and experiences that I've watched. But I'd, I'd really kind of like to start with, with each of you with your, your first experience with Ennio and, and what that was, whether that was through just his music, through his music in a film, or, or what was that? Lucy, do you want to start? So for me, definitely, it was before I even knew definitely who he was, but maybe even what a film composer was or, or how music came about to be in a film but watching and it's sort of 80s Sunday afternoons <laughs> coming across those Leone films and being completely mesmerized obviously by the the vision but this sound that seems so different from a lot of the films that made the contemporary films I was listening, which I also love, but this just stood out as something so remarkable. So that it captured it from obviously from that moment onwards, that has been the sound of the West for me. And um, so that was definitely, it was definitely the, the music first and then kind of learning through some of the, the other kind of contemporary music that I loved realizing oh that's the same sound so when the Ramones covered the good bad and the ugly and when you know New Order used that bass line and those things it's like oh wow suddenly putting it all together and realizing that my god it's actually this person this person that kind of created this yeah and then that was it sort of falling in love with him it is. I think that that's one of the brilliant things that the documentary does is that it kind of reinstates how he breathed life into so much of what we take for granted or know as our sort of sonic existence in a way. Matthew, what, what about for you? What was your kind of introduction to, to the work of the maestro? I grew up without a television. My sort of first 20 years, really, the only chance I ever got to see TV was at piano lessons when I, my sister was having her piano lesson <laughs> I got I snuck upstairs and, and got to watch a little bit of whatever was on on telly there but in a way similar to Lucy the sort of although sort of even once one further step removed which was the music came to me first which was in the playground people would be going do you do 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 and playing at cowboys and and all of that that kind of stuff and it's so iconic I think just because I mean I the great detail of of that particular phrase being mimicking this coyote howl, and so feeling quite visceral. And later on in the film, or well, actually later on in the theme, you hear people will even just go, which is completely bonkers. Actually, yeah. there's no way as a composer, there's no way I would go in one of my scores now. Everyone would be, what on earth are you doing? But this kind of this boldness, I think, is. And strangeness, I think, is what it just cut through. It cut straight the way through a, a culture and reached an English kid in the 70s in a playground who hadn't, hadn't ever seen any of the films.
course, you realize actually that particularly because the scale of the work that he's done, that actually you, you kind of inherit him through osmosis mm. because he's touched so many people and so many films and so many other composers and so much music and influenced so many people in so many ways that you realize kind of everybody, whether they like it or not, has some kind of relationship with him. Roland, how would you describe your, your relationship with Ennio? And, and would you mind talking a little bit about that? that experience of, of, you know, of working with him? When I first met Ennio in person, as opposed to listening to his music, was when we had a screening for him of, of permission. And that particular screen, there was no sound, there was no music track anyway. There was a recording of Marcello's oboe concerto, which, which Jeremy was actually playing, because we'd actually used that recordings in the jungle to play to the indigenous people. We needed some music, and I thought there was a wonderful piece of Western music to play to them. So their responses to it, were in a way absolutely unsolicited. I mean, they, they, they adored the sounds. What you see on their faces is their admiration for that music. After the screening, when I went back into the theatre, I didn't sit there with any of it. I couldn't see anybody in the, in the um, auditorium. It was completely empty. I thought, oh, my God, that was quick. And he was gone. And then I realised there was a slight movement. I realised that Ennio had sunk down in the seat until you couldn't see him. And then he kind of re-emerged like a dolphin out of the water. <laughs> he looked at me and he said... You don't need any music in this film. Non utilizzare lavorare deve avere musica in questo film. You don't need music in this film. It should be exactly as it is. And anyway, I can't write anything better than than the Marcello. I mean, if you use the Marcello, you go with Marcello. He says, "I can't write anything better than this. Music will ruin this film." And I was a bit surprised at that response, but I noticed he was crying. I mean, there were tears literally streaming down his face, which says a lot about his character. Anyway, I, I kind of said goodbye. And rather amused, I, I phoned David Putnam as a producer. So David, I'm not sure that that went very well. David said, well, leave it a few days. You never know what will happen. About a week later, I got a telephone call, and the voice said, I don't know. Ennio is here. I said, yes. And how piccolo we there? I've got a little idea. I, I don't know whether there's anything in it. But, you know, and I said, um, I'd love to hear it. And then he said, uh, Andrea, cure la porta. Andrea, shut the door, please. No, tell Mama I'm coming for, for lunch in a minute. I just want to do this. <laughs> and then he, and that was very Ennio because everything was family. Yeah. And then he sang rather badly, and as badly as I'm going to sing, but down the phone, a rather bad line, he went, ba da ba ba bum, da dee da 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 dee da da. You just heard it. Mm. And you just heard it, badly sung as it was. a very important thing really which was that the visual imagery is like the it's like the body 
of a film, the music is undoubtedly the soul. And boy, if you can get those two things, if you can get the soul to inhabit the body and the body to be receptive to the soul, you have something magnificent. Very often that doesn't happen, but when it does, it's quite extraordinary because the visual images accrue a kind of immense power. And I remember talking to anyone about that and saying, you know, when you're, the thing about music and about sound strikes me as very important. Because he said to me, I, I know you love music and you love sound. And I said, I'll tell you why. It's when people go blind, they really become paranoid. But my God, when people go deaf, because we have evolved to use our sound to know our environment. And if you mm. can't hear, it's terrifying. That's a, an indication of how powerful sound is. And as the others were saying, the extraordinary thing that Ennio could do was he somehow managed to make music feline. There's a feline quality to Ennio's music. You think about it, it's kind of live and it, it sort of it, it moves and then it rears up on its hind legs and then it kind of reaches up into the trees. And it, it has an extraordinary quality to it. And that's where Ennio really works, I think, is when Ennio releases that side of himself into, into the music. And it reminded me a bit, thinking of those early films that he did, you know, the, the Leone films. Mm. He uses music a bit the same way that Japanese cinema does. If you listen to the music in Japanese cinema, certainly Kurosawa in those films, it has the same kind of feline but muscular presence, and it has the same sense of drama. In other words, it's not just accompanying, it is finding moments, emphasising moments, driving moments and Ennio could do that because because he was very human mm. and very much moved by his emotions and if his emotions released then what you got was magic With the film, Lucy and Matthew, what was what was your reaction after watching the film? Because well, you're you're obviously in it as well, and you're part of this beautiful ensemble of of people who you know regaling their stories of their experience of working with them. And and I I was so moved by the film, really kind of, and I didn't want it to end. And I think that the fact that you know Giuseppe and him have this kind of had this long-standing personal professional relationship that. It needed someone like that to make it to, for him to feel comfortable. And you see that in those interview moments that they recorded over 11 days and how emotional he is regaling his story of his life and going back to moments and stuff. But watching it, what was your reaction after you watched the film, Lucy and Matthew? I totally, I loved it. It was, it's, it's one of those ones where you feel you, you know, someone and then you hear these stories and it's like, oh, wow, I didn't even know the, you know, the tip of it. Yeah, and, totally. Um, 
and I have to actually one one of my favorite moments was Roland when you were talking about that phone call where he sings the the theme I, just, I must admit I was so jealous the idea to have Ennio call you and and just sing this theme that's your you know that's for your film it was I you, you talk about having sort of goosebumps and I re- I felt that too it was such a beautiful moment I was really fascinated I knew a bit about his sort of hardcore classical training but that was amazing to me like to see how young he'd been you know going into the conservatoire how hard he worked mm. I loved the fact that he still remembered the scores he got on those um <laughs> But when he was sort of, you know, 14, 15 and how much that had meant to him and how much that sort of um, deep understanding. I think that that makes perfect sense. The fact that he knew classical music inside out and to know all the rules, I think, is when you can break the rules and break them so brilliantly. And that, you know, even the sort of the Darmstadt school side where he was really, you know, absorbing this new experimental sound, mm. but being able to put it in the context of, you know, a thousand years of, of music going back to Bach, going mm. further. And and uh, that was fascinating to me. And I love, as you say, how emotional he still got talking about those times and the detail he remembered it's a total treat to to hear those memories captured like that. And also just his memories, almost like what you were talking about, Roland, of those moments where he's he he creates and he has a melody in his head or he has a and and how he we got an insight into that that the root of some of those moments of when he would he would kind of, you know, he would sing on camera those little motifs or those little moments. And it was such a wonderful insight. And yeah, it was extraordinary. Matthew, what was your feeling and reaction to watching the film because you've you know you've had your own opportunity to to kind of reinterpret his music as well you know and so for you what was that experience like well first of all I was really I was (laughs) was quite shocked at how much he could remember of his own music (laughs) and having having done five having you know him having done 500 films and to be able to remember so much Mm. I think that my I was slightly overwhelmed with the film I have to say I mean there's so much to love in it I'm not um, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it, but I just I had to take it in chunks because it was so much and wave upon wave, and you just you only had chance to. Sorry, I've got very horny peacocks um, outside my studio at the moment. <laughs> it's mating season. It's a good name for a band, that actually. Is, yeah. <laughs> so if you hear that noise, it's he's and he's chosen just outside my studio. He's a fan of Morricone. He wants to come and say exactly. his piece. Yeah, there it's we not go. A million miles off. Is it? <laughs> Um, but there's a sort of density to it. You know, the, one of the things I really loved actually was hearing a documentary like this. I and mean, it's quite quite long as well, where all the music is Morricone as well. It, yeah. It's a small thing to say, but music in, in modern film and documentaries particularly can be quite uneven these days because everybody feels like they've they've got an opinion, you know, and producers and directors now, I, I get notes from everybody. I get notes from broadcasters. Previously, it would just be a relationship with the director, if you were lucky. Mm. And now everybody's got an opinion. And it's particularly, that's particularly the case in, in TV world, where you get notes, not, you know, some shows I do where a TV series, you might have three or four directors on it. You sometimes never have a single conversation with any of them. And it's made, the show's made with that. And so one of the things that I 
was jealous of but also <laughs> admired in in him sticking to it is is the sort of value that he placed in the in the very explicit relationship with the director um the people that he was work, making the films with he seemed to be very clear about his position which is i won't copy other people i want to take full responsibility for this this is my vision and i want to work with you but ultimately you know he says at one point directors are responsible for lighting makeup and all of this but actually it's the the music no <laughs> no you don't go near the music you know which and sadly as as composers we don't have that luxury anymore or certainly not at my level maybe when you're when you've won a few oscars maybe you can have that authority that sort of singularity of vision i think is 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 what shines through the most for me you mentioned oscars that whole kind of sort of little narrative that runs in the film as well about how he he didn't have this kind of cabinet full of them. Do you know what I mean? That he should have had through the decades of of always incredible work. And that moment when he goes up and he's just like, oh my goodness, it's like, finally. Did Giuseppe Roland for you, was it a case of, did you just get contacted to ask to be involved in the film? And what was the, the journey of being part of this, this wonderful collection of collaborators and friends and, you know, that were part of his world? Well, you know, yeah, of course, one was just a bit of the whole kind of um, kaleidoscope. Uh, but I, I hadn't seen Ennio long before. I mean, I actually saw Ennio quite shortly before he died, actually, because we had another project that we were thinking of working on together, um, something that Ennio really loved. And it was extraordinary because I went to see Ennio in his apartment, a different apartment than one I was used to seeing him in. And it was like he was as evanescent as ever. I mean, it was it was... He immediately had some stuff he wanted me to hear. Um, supper was getting cold on the table. Maria was kind of hovering about, like, in a really, I wouldn't listen to the music now because it's going to take a rather long time. And that was Ennio. And that degree of passion was Ennio. I mean, Ennio, I remember him once saying to me quite forcefully, by the way, I'm not a slave. And that's because I was arguing with him about something. And, but those arguments were wonderful. I mean, certainly in the mission, I said, I don't think you can use only classical instrumentation, Ennio. I think you should use some South American music. And he said, no. And I said, why not? And he said, because it won't fit. And I said, well, it's in, it's in Latin America. Why won't it fit? And he said, anyway, there's no point. And anyway, that music is basically Sicilian. Basically <laughs> Sicilian, anyway. He said, you don't know anything about music, Roland. Your knowledge of music is about as bad as your knowledge of Italian. Um, you don't know, and, and it's a sinner. I'm not putting it in the film. And I thought, this is, this is very convoluted, and I must have asked in the wrong way. So what I did was, when he was coming to Wimbledon to kind of do preparations for the sound recording, I actually got a group of South Americans who happened to be in England to come in and be in a little studio at the side playing. And as we were walking past, I said, oh, Enya, have a listen to this for a moment. And they were playing, playing the pan flutes. And Enya looked at me, and I could see him thinking, that's a devilish thing to do. That was with his eyes, but his ears, if they could have stretched, were going into that sound. The next thing I knew, he was back at his score, sort of noise and scratching out and things. And the next thing we knew, a pan flute had crept in and then a little, and that was, that was Ennio. You, you, you had to meet his passion with yours um, and not be afraid of that. And maybe that's his Italian thing. And I think that's what one I always loved about Ennio was there were no holes barred but everything was done with an intense human warmth. Mm. I was going to say love, and I suppose it is love in a way, but certainly warmth. He was the warmest 
most connected human being I've ever met, I think. It was extraordinary to see those moments. I mean, I loved watching him doing his daily exercises. I thought that was such a cute moment. Um, but I loved watching him write because, you know, we kind of, uh, his, his obviously his classical training, it was almost write, like writing a language when you would watch him sitting with that, the, that kind of musical paper and just and writing down notes as if he was communicating in that way rather than sitting down at a piano. And more. it was so fascinating to to watch I agree you could just see he could hear it in his head and it was just flowing and I yeah I agree I don't know the same way a writer would sit at a computer or a typewriter and write out it's his way of kind of which I thought was just extraordinary to see it was it kind of sort of almost like hypnotic in a way I was gonna say I hated that stuff (laughs) (laughs) because because it made me it made me really jealous that I didn't have a room like that with time just to sort of with a pen and paper and also that that's sorry peacocks um and that and that's that sort of that skill and the time the and the sort of dedication we again it's just we just don't have that time now you know i uh, one of the films that i did um a fantastic woman which won the oscar for best foreign film a few years ago I had two and a half weeks to do the whole thing from meeting the director to delivering a finished recorded wow. orchestral score. And, and some of the TV shows, I get one or two days to write an episode of music. So you have so little time now because computers are so quick. At, you know, I can mm. press a key, key now and you can hear a full orchestra playing. You know, you, you don't need to sort of write it all out anymore. There's definitely something that feels like a dying art, you know, like with pen and paper. And it's an extraordinary skill that, yeah, I'm incredibly je- jealous of that he has the time and the capacity to do it in that way. It didn't really go into it, but I, I wondered, Roland, how he delivered his uh, demos to you. I mean, other than the singing down the phone. <laughs> oh, no, it, was, it, was, it was singing down the phone or it was a not very well played grand piano in his in his flat in Rome and you didn't hear what it was until you were on the recording stage but you knew Amazing. you knew the bass and then when you were in the recording so I used to go down actually go go right down onto the stage you know onto the recording area and actually listen and when we were doing the mission and this was interesting working with Enio at one point I, I said to him you know Enio that I think the choir is really beautiful but I, I can't ex- explain but there's something missing and he had his headphones on and he was kind of looking at me quite crossly, because talking about time, this was a director wasting time of his recording time. He said, what is it? I said, I don't know. I think, uh, can we try an experiment? He said, yeah, okay. So I said, can we turn the choir around so they're not looking at you, but they're looking at the film, which is being projected? And he said, yes, okay. Why? And I said, well, you'll see. I can't explain. But So we turned the choir around, and I said to the choir, would you pick somebody in this 
particular sequence, was one of the shootings of the Indian sequence towards the end, to pick somebody and be that person when you sing. And what happened, so we did it, and what happened was the choir went very slightly out of total cohesion, but something else crept in. There was, and that's where the magic lay. And this is relevant, I think, to what you were saying. And anyway, I totally remember that, totally understood it. Afterwards, some years later, I was talking about this to him, and I told him a story that a physicist had told me, and I think this is important to all who love music. She was a, a Korean physicist. I think she was a Nobel Prize winner, and we were talking about time and about the universe, and she suddenly said, she looked at me and she said, are you know, Mr. Joffrey, the whole universe, everything in the universe, including us, is one extraordinary Jazz riff. <laughs> and that comes to a point about the way electronics interferes. The problem with speed and the problem with being able to produce an orchestra right out of pressing a button is this stops you listening to the universe. That's electronics and, and material things telling you what sound is supposed to be. Wow. And we all battle with that. But there's an important key there, which is real music is made by a single person communicating with something much broader than themselves. And the composers I found who managed to kind of fight for their corner and fight for their space to listen and not be colonized by digital behaviors, find that. And that's what Ennio was doing when he was writing. You know, it was like spirit writing. It was like, and there's something tremendously important about that because music is about humanity. And God bless you, I would come over and give you a hug, step over the peacock and give you a hug because I know the pressure you're under when people suddenly expect digital behavior, but you're not digital, you're a human being, I can see in your face the emotions that pass across it. That's actually what people are asking you to give to your music. So if they don't give you time to do that, they are trying to cut you off at the toes, before the feet rather, before they give you a chance to write. So we've got to fight back against that. Music's communication. Thanks for the virtual hug. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I think there's something really key about that though isn't there which is the trust that you as a director need to place in that relationship with director that you can't and I've seen that someone else talk about I think it might have even been Scorsese talking about that that the only 
way that it really works is when there's proper trust between the director and the composer. And you can see how those relationships form. So with Ennio's case, it um, would be Sergio Leone or others and all these films that they're associated with where they've made a a whole series of them or Bernard Herrmann with Hitchcock or uh, whoever, these pairings. And you can see how, or more recently, Paul Thomas Anderson and Johnny Greenwood, you know, how these relationships where you need to be able to trust each other that you've got the best interests of the, the worker at heart. And as you say, you're not able to completely hear it, but you trust that, that Ennio knew what he was doing. And um, that sort of, that trust between the, between people, actually the, create, the creative heart of the film, that's been sort of destabilised, I think, a bit by the, some of the digital forces that you're talking about and also the kind of the capitalistic forces of pressures of, you know, numbers and, you know, this horrible thing now as well where they show a movie to people and then they strangers and they get them to rate the film before mm. it goes to the public and then they come back to you and say oh you know the audience don't like that that thing or what have you can you redo it and it's everything's gone a bit diluted and it does seem like from a from an era where there was that trust and that that freedom to express yourself maybe a little more fully I love as well how he really stood up for himself and stood up for his creativity and his vision sort of thing you know he Roland you were saying it he was like no but then he would also listen you know, he would he would he would stand up for kind of what his art was, really, whatever that was. And I was so interested about that era of him, you know, when he was writing pieces for Italian pop stars and things. I didn't know any of that about him. It was amazing. And I've gone down a whole rabbit hole of just when I was watching, it, I had a pad next to me just constantly writing things down that I that I wanted to feed myself with. But I love that about him from what I got from the documentary was that he was. He was very kind of proud of his art and he protected it, but he also listened to people and he wanted to learn, constantly wanted to learn as well as he was going through. Totally. One of my favourite, I mean, the, those sort of stories that brought up basically temp love and, and I thought, oh, that's so funny. Still today we're struggling with temp love and there he was talking about, there was almost these sort of caper stories of, of the one director going in and stealing some of the music from the other director he was working with and, and saying, no, 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 you've just got, I, that's, that's the only thing that will work and you've got to copy that and him talking about how he was stuck in between them. And, but, yeah, it was it's such an insight into, into an amazing time of yeah of productivity and and Lucy it's been interesting hearing Roland and Marty talk about that kind of you know the relationship between the 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 director and the composer and the music supervisor is such an important role as well because almost a bridge between the two sometimes in a way and and the voice sometimes that then you know I guess there's a protective element there for you as well absolutely those are my favorite projects so when when I can get really involved with the with the composer as well and whether that's you know partly suggesting a composer or as you say becoming this sort of conduit and a kind of enabler for for both sides you know you you, you want your director to have the exact score that you know that they they've dreamt of and you want the composer to to feel kind of totally open and and uh enabled to to create something bold and exciting and uh you know that is their voice still as well as uh serving the film yeah um so yeah that's it's a lovely relationship we've run out of time i'm so sorry because this has been such a fascinating and just joyful conversation and thank you so much lucy matthew and for your time it's just been really lovely to enthuse about him and 
and this film whilst also talking about your work as well. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Can I just on, say Matthew. one thing before, yeah. before we go that I suddenly realised I'm desperate to talk about was just, his, was just his relationship to sound, actually, particularly in the early stuff. Yeah. Just the, the sort of taking sounds from within the film or from within the story or that re- and having a really good relationship with whoever was doing the sound design, particularly in, in some of the 60s stuff. And also the recording engineers, some of it's in mono, the stereo placement's really interesting when they do get stereo. But that, that vision, but that relationship with sound, I think I did want to just put a wave a little flag and just say how, you know, we, we sometimes get lost with his incredible melodies and his, his sort of um, scope and scale and flexibility. But actually, I think he was a real visionary from, from, a, from a perspective of sound. Mm. Um, I totally I agree. That was one of my bold notes that I'd written <laughs> down, actually, was, you know, basically he was an incredible sound designer as, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I also it's interesting from watching the film how you can see his in his influence or his inspiration in you know in in people like Yorgos Lanthimos as well. Like when you're talking about sound in terms of how as a director, it's incre- that's an incredible, incredibly important part of it for him, sort of thing. And I think he's been not that we've taken his work for granted, but I hope that this documentary kind of re retells his story and more people kind of go oh, it was down to him or he, you know, whether that's the, you know, the the Westerns or his experimentalism, like we're talking about, he just, he seemed to be so open to so many different things. And that's what I was kind of trying to say about, he was, he wanted to learn and he was interested and he was a listener as well. Totally. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Um, have a great bank holiday weekend. Good luck with the horny peacocks. And um, I hope to have you all on the podcast again. Um, soon, whether that be to talk about you know your individual projects or, or to do something like this again, really appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. score to the mission that's miserere rounding off this latest episode of soundtrack and reflecting upon the life of maestro morricone my huge thanks to lucy matthew and roland for taking the time to talk to us Enyo is still available to watch in certain cinemas if you just head to dogwoof.com forward slash Enyo it gives you all the details on where you can see it in cinema but also it is available on demand and on DVD and Blu-ray from the 27th of June but it's on demand now so you can watch it on Apple TV, BFI Player, Google Play, Curzon, Sky, Dogwoof on demand as I said all the details can be found at dogwoof.com forward slash Enyo It is an incredible, genuinely moving and inspiring film. Whether you are an aficionado of score or just a casual listener, it's a beautiful and gorgeously told story about 
I think one of the most inspiring men ever. And just seeing him talk about his craft and his history and how emotional he gets about it, oh, it is a beautiful thing. So go and watch it right now. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my conversations with Quentin Tarantino and Hans Zimmer, both of whom feature in the doc. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do keep spreading the word if you like what you hear. Next up, I am thrilled to be joined by one of my favourite actors, Jack Loudon. Jack's appeared in many things. You might have seen him in Slow Horses alongside Gary Oldman recently. Jack's also about to appear in Benediction, which is out in cinemas on Friday. So Jack Loudon, my guest on next week's show, I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs> 